in Grand County and San Juan. They dig the yellow stuff that makes the atom bomb. They do the uranium miners boogie. The uranium miners boogie. It's the uranium miners boogie. They dig digging all day long. You are listening to Men in Lead Aprons. Everything you might want to know about radiation, the good, the bad, and the not yet known. This is a regular podcast from the Columbia University Center for Radiological Research from the heart of New York City. And here are your hosts, Dr. Eric Hall and Dr. David Brenner. Hello and uh, welcome back to Men in Lead Aprons, a series of podcasts from the Center for Radiological Research at Columbia University in New York City. This is Episode 9, and today we will discuss dirty bombs. What is a dirty bomb? How likely is it that one might be exploded? And what would be the consequences? Many people, ourselves included, have been thinking and worrying about dirty bombs for several decades. But they made the news headlines just recently when Time magazine published an article claiming that ISIS wants a dirty bomb and knows where to get one. This rocketed dirty bombs to the top of our list of hot topics. My name is Eric Hall, and for more than 20 years, I was director of the Center for Radiological Research. So let me introduce my fellow man in a lead apron, David Brenner, who is the current director of the Center for Radiological Research. Good morning, David. I recall you giving talks about dirty bombs quite a few years ago. Is that correct? Uh, Good morning, Eric. And and yes, that's right. Uh, We first started worrying about dirty bombs more than 20 years ago. That reminds me, Dr. Brenner, that today, if I'm not mistaken, is your birthday. Is that correct? Uh, That is correct, but that's uh, definitely to be kept a secret from our listeners. Before we get into any details... Can you tell us in simple terms what exactly is a dirty bomb and what is its intended purpose? Well, to put it very simply, Eric, a, a dirty bomb is some radioactive material uh, attached to some explosive, like, like dynamite. Then if the explosive is detonated, the radioactive material will be dispersed into the surrounding environment. So, so that's very different from what we call an atomic bomb or a nuclear weapon. Yes, absolutely. An atomic bomb is is what was detonated over Hiroshima and and Nagasaki to to end World War II. And that involves a massive, massive explosion generated through nuclear fission or nuclear fusion. Um, These are, of course, unimaginably disastrous events which would kill tens of thousands of people. Fortunately, you need a lot of high technology, not to mention the right nuclear materials, to make a nuclear weapon. So the chances of one being detonated in the U.S. are very, very small indeed. Not zero risk, but at least I hope very, very unlikely. So a dirty bomb explosion is much more likely. Yeah, absolutely, much more likely. Um, But as we'll talk about, certainly less disastrous in terms of their consequences compared with a nuclear weapon detonation. So the idea behind a dirty bomb seems simple enough. And it is not hard to imagine the chaos it would cause. The crux of the matter seems to me to be how difficult is it for a terrorist to get hold of a sufficient quantity of radioactive material? Well, let me, let me try and answer that with, with a quote from Kofi Annan, who was the, the former UN Secretary General. So he said, 
Many experts tell us the question is not whether, but how soon we will see a dirty bomb detonated in central London or some other major capital. And I, I think the issue is that worldwide there are hundreds of thousands of radioactive sources being used and stored. So has a dirty bomb actually been made or used? Well, certainly made, um, though I don't think detonated, uh, at least at this point, I'm happy to say. And let, let me give you a few examples there. So back in 1995, uh, tw 20 years ago, a, a Moscow TV station got a call to say that there was a cache of radioactive materials buried, buried in Moscow's Ismailovsky Park, which is one of Moscow's biggest parks. And indeed, there they found a partially buried container containing radioactive cesium with some dynamite and a detonator attached. The message was pretty clear. We could have blown up this if we'd wanted to. And a couple of years later, um, in 1998, a container filled with radioactive, radioactive materials was found attached to an explosive mine near a railway line just outside Grozny, which is the, the capital of the Chechen Republic. And, and, and let's move closer to home. In, in that same year, 1998, uh, 19 small tubes containing radioactive cesium were stolen from a locked safe in a hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina, and they've never been found. So these are just a few examples, but the bottom line here is that there are a lot of radioactive sources around, and a determined terrorist could most likely get access to some of these sources. Well, that's uh, very disturbing. So is the government doing anything to prevent these sources from being stolen? Well, yes, yes they are. Uh, and I think radioactive sources are far better protected now than they were 20 years ago. Um, just one example, uh, in, in all, all blood banks uh, contain cesium irradiators, and they're very, very much better secured than they were 20 years back. Well, this brings us to the article in Time magazine which suggests that ISIS wants to make and use a dirty bomb. Yeah, right, and, and the article suggests that in Eastern Europe, surplus nuclear material, material is readily available for sale on the black market. But of course it would be tough, although not impossible, to, to smuggle these radioactive sources into the US. So the situation is quite different from that in the United States. Yeah, so he, as, as I was saying, here in the U.S., security is undoubtedly very tight, for example, at nuclear facilities like nuclear power stations. So it would be very difficult for terrorists to obtain even a small amount of nuclear material from these sorts of sources. Uh, so in general, the high-level radioactive sources are now pretty well protected, but low- and intermediate-level sources, well, they're certainly uh, less well protected, and they're around. Um, I'll give you an example. So right now, they are resurfacing the road outside uh, where I live. So that's a pretty common or garden activity. Uh, but par part of this common or garden activity is to use a moisture density gauge to ensure that the new asphalt that's being laid down is appropriately compacted. And these moisture density gauges contain radioactive cesium. Now, there are about 20,000 of these moisture density gauges uh, currently in use in the U.S., and they all contain some radioactive material, either cesium or americium. And uh, about 50 of these moisture density gauges uh, reported, are reported as going missing every year. My goodness. So, David, if some terrorist managed to make a dirty bomb, 
And if it were exploded in a busy location, such as Grand Central Station or Times Square, what would be the consequences? Well, Eric, I think here we, we need to make a clear distinction between the potential actual health effects and the resulting panic and, and, and chaos and disruption. So let's talk a bit about the health effects. And of course, the health effects to people nearby really depend completely on what sort of dirty bomb it actually was. Um, first of all, did it contain very large amounts of radioactivity or a very small amount or, or something in between? And second, it, it does actually de depend a lot on the actual design of the bomb. So if, if the explosion turned a lot of the radioactive material into aerosols, that's, that's basically dust particles, well, these could float in the air and be blown by the wind far away from the explosion. And so on, on, a lot more people would be affected. But if the explosion didn't turn the radioactive material into aerosols, well, it would mo likely, most likely end up on the ground very close to the explosion. So there's a very big difference, and that depends on the details of, of the dirty bomb design. So there are many possibilities, but what do you think is the most likely scenario? Well, the, as you say, there are many possibilities, but I think the most likely scenario is, is a dirty bomb that contains a small amount of radioactive material uh, which did not get turned into aerosols. So in th that case, perhaps nobody would be actually exposed to significant amounts of radiation. And so in this case, the major consequence is going to be major panic and chaos and the disruption as, as huge numbers of, numbers of people would want to flee the city. Fleeing the city, my goodness, is that the most appropriate response to the detonation of a dirty bomb? Well, almost certainly not. Um, I, the, the right response to a, to a dirty bomb explosion is to shelter in place, which, which means to stay or to go indoors and, and to simply close the windows. For how long? Well, again, the, the answer to that depends very much on the nature of the d dirty bomb. Um, essentially, the answer is until the radiation in the air has blown through or dispersed. Uh, and in most conceivable scenarios, that's going to be a few hours. Uh, of course, for, for a huge dirty bomb, it will be longer. But again, whatever the scenario, sheltering in place makes a lot more sense than getting in your car and trying to flee the city. Okay, so now the radioactive plume has dispersed away. What about the remaining radioactivity on the ground? Will the city be safe? What about our food? Well, Eric, at, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, again, it depends on the nature of the, of the dirty bomb. So a huge dirty bomb that got aerosolized, so all, all the dirty bomb got turned into dust, will mean significant long-term radioactive contamination and a logistical nightmare to clean up. A small dirty bomb that was not aerosolized, well, there might be almost nothing beyond the immediate area around the explosion. So how can we prevent the panic and the disruption that seems to be the most likely outcome of a dirty bomb? Well, I think the answer in, in one word is information, which is, is the theme of our uh, podcast. And I think there's a lot of studies that show that the key is to get real information to people in the affected area. And that's information they can really believe. And I have in mind when I, when I say this, uh, the Fukushima accident in Japan in, in, in 2011. So what, what got people most concerned about the radiation situation then uh, is that they flat out didn't think that they were being told the truth. Well, that's a very understandable response, of course. 
For sure, and in this country too. Imagine a scenario where a small dirty bomb was released in a city and then some folks in white coats came on the TV and said, don't panic, nobody's going to be exposed. Well, who's going to really believe them? Not many, I'd venture. Uh, I would agree with that. And, and, and actually, that's one of the main reasons for a project that be, that's been going on here at Columbia University for more than a decade now. So the, the idea is, is that after the sort of radiation event that we've been talking about, we'd like to provide everybody with an individual personalized estimate of just how much radiation dose they've been exposed to. How can you do that for so many people? Well, by taking a finger stick of blood, a single drop of blood, just like diabetics take routinely to check their insulin levels. And based on this drop of blood, we can estimate just how much, if, if any, radiation dose that that individual received. And hopefully, in almost every case, we'll be able to say, well, you got no dose or, or a very tiny dose. But of course, if someone did get a significant radiation dose, then we'll be able to identify them. How do you do all this from a single drop of blood? Well, regular listeners to this podcast will remember that radiation damages our DNA. So what we do with this drop of blood is for look for DNA damage. Uh, and the more DNA damage, then the bigger the dose that individual got. And the less DNA damage, the smaller the dose. So what we hope to be able to do is to provide an individual estimate of radiation dose for every concerned individual. Can you really do this quickly for thousands of people? Well, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And, and yes, we're getting there. So our technology is called the RABBIT. And the RABBIT stands for Rapid Automated Biodissimetry Technology. And we're really encouraged with how it's going. And remember, information is the enemy of panic. So, for example, information that you or your loved ones really did not receive a significant radiation dose is the best way to, to prevent the panic and the disruption, which is, after all, what the bad guys are trying to achieve in, in detonating a dirty bomb in the first place. Well, that's very encouraging, David, a way of truly fighting back against the bad guys. So I think that's all we have time for today. We've been talking about dirty bombs, and I think the main message is that most, though not all, dirty bomb scenarios are likely to cause far more panic than serious health effects. But as always, the bottom line is information, and we hope that you have learned a little about the possible outcomes of a dirty bomb explosion. Just a reminder, please rate and review us on iTunes on the Men in Lead Aprons page, or if you have comments and questions, please visit our website, which is crr.columbia.edu. There is a link to Men in Lead Aprons where you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or email us directly.